Do I still have to redact it, even though you guys are on record? It's called TSFCI. I think I'm a little nicer in real life than I am on Twitter. It's not hard. Feminist like mileage accounts. Welcome, everyone, to Unredacted. I'm Philippe Reines, and here with my co-host, Emily Brandwin. Today, we are talking to uh, two people that you might know from Twitter. They are very active, and they are Mark Zaid and Brad Moss. They are both lawyers. They are lawyers who work together. Mark and Brad have a very specific specialty that has gotten a lot of attention over the last year or two has not gotten enough attention over the last few decades. They deserve a lot of credit for focusing on it, working on it. In simplest terms, it's the American people's uh, right to know what its government is doing in the form of transparency and seeing what people are writing to each other, what people are doing, memos, to really pull back the veil and, for better or worse, see what our taxpayer dollars are doing to make sure people are conforming with uh, the requisite ethics rules and just being good government employees. I have been on both sides of FOIA. This is the first time that Unredacted has had a guest that has uh, sued (laughs) one of the Unredacted hosts. Um, (laughs) Both Mark and Brad were the attorneys of record on a lawsuit that I was not party to, but was the subject of, and we can talk about that in a bit. Um, But they really have dedicated their professional lives to this topic, and uh, jokes aside, it is very important. Um, And we can talk to them about examples of FOIA and Privacy Act issues that have really brought things to light. So with that, gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Good afternoon. Um, I know we wanted to start by asking, how does one get into this specialty? Because it really is a specialized specialty, even within the realm of specialties. Well, do you want to start that one, boss? Because you started. I'm the older one. So it it came from me. And this is Mark. So when I was in college, I started to use FOIA uh, in the late 80s. And I got into it basically because of the Kennedy assassination, John F. Kennedy's assassination. I did, back in the day, a lot of research on it. I spoke about it. I lectured about it. I mean, I taught courses. I wrote uh, articles, spoke at conferences, newscasts, uh, a lot. And uh, I, when I got out of law school in 92, uh, I started to fall out of favor of the conspiracy community for a variety of reasons, because uh, I had moved to DC and I didn't, I started to learn more about how the government actually works and realizing that most of the agencies didn't have the competence to have pulled off what these conspiracies <laughs> thought <laughs> they could have done. And, but my first cases as a lawyer were FOIA cases against the CIA uh, dealing with the Kennedy assassination. And then I was introduced to an individual at a conference I was speaking at in Dallas who was a senior DIA, Defense Intelligence Agency official, and he ran into a personnel problem at work where he thought he didn't get a job he was entitled to, and he hired me in late 93. And that, those two cases brought me into the intel sphere uh, more than anything else. 
And I was also litigating the Pan Am 103 case against the government of Libya at the same time, uh, having known people who were on the plane, and it was very personal to me. But, but that didn't bring me as much into the intel world. That was the State Department. That was the Justice Department when we were dealing with sovereign immunity issues against Libya, etc. But the, the two cases of the JFK case and the DIA case uh, pushed me into the intel world. The DIA is a very small agency, uh, respectively speaking, uh, to all the others. And literally in the 90s in particular, if anyone had a problem with their agency, they were sent to me as the lawyer. And the CIA case... Uh, that I had as a FOIA lawsuit was written up in the Washington Post and the Legal Times and others who worked at in the Intel world saw that and there's just for whatever reason I've never understood this because I'm not scared of the agencies uh, I've never had any problem other than I've been threatened a few times by by them but it's mostly like professionally not personally so you know there's not that many lawyers who will take on the US government one but then the intel agencies. So I started getting hired at NSA and NRO and NGA and the military and etc. Uh, and so by the by time, the individuals, not by the by agencies. the individuals, yeah, yeah, by the individuals to sue those agencies. And I was doing a lot of FOIA work during the time as well, because for the most part, it's I'll say it's easy as compared to the other work that we do, uh, because the law especially now, is pretty settled. So you're not usually creating new law, coming up with innovative arguments. You're taking existing law and just applying the facts to that particular case. Uh, and we often tend to be subject matter experts when we're dealing with the intel community about the information as well. So that's helpful. When we're not subject matter experts, hopefully the client is, because otherwise, frankly, we don't know what we're looking for a lot of times. Brad came to me, I'm already out, I'm already practicing about 14 years, uh, when Brad was a student at American Law School, American University School of Law, and brought me in as a speaker. And I, I adopted him, <laughs> basically. Literally, uh, literally to the point where I get emails these days addressing me as Brad Zaid, and I say, hey, boss, hey, dad, can I take the car out? That's okay, because I, I, I get threatening voicemails on because if you call the office, it comes to my phone for him, mostly because of his Fox News appearances. Yeah, nice. Uh, but so, it, yes, it's, it's been fun. So it, Brad has been with me since his second year of law school, I think. Yep. Uh, and I mean, the, which has been fantastic because we're basically very similar, except he's 15 years younger or whatever the heck you are. Uh, than I am. Uh, and I didn't, it's been great because I didn't have that when, when I was at his level. Uh, I had to pretty much create everything on my own and try to learn from some more senior people, especially in FOIA. I had someone at least to guide me in that, but not in all the Intel personnel stuff. I mean, and then the difference between a lot of what we do as compared to others, whether it's a security clearance case, which we do a lot of our bread and butter actually comes from security clearance cases or personnel cases within the agencies, primarily the IC, Intel agencies, military or law enforcement. Uh, we also deal with classified work, which most of our colleagues do not do. So very few of the security, the small number of lawyers who deal with security clearances have security clearances themselves, whereas we do. So when we're doing stuff 
inter internally at the CIA or DIA, usually those two agencies in particular, uh, we have access to classified information, not every case, but uh, in many cases. And that's both a, a positive and a negative. A lot, a lot of times it's actually a, ne a negative thing that we actually have access to classified information because the agencies use it as a weapon against us. But uh, it has been fantastic over the last 15 years to grow where finally Brad has learned so that I can let him do a case without my having to babysit him. Been doing cases without babysitting from you for years. Okay, two years, maybe. So, years. Mark, you're the worst kind of guest because in five minutes you've raised, no, 10 different topics that would be great to spend an hour on, uh, including the Pan Am 103. Yeah. And my one quick question is when the conspiracy theory crowd kicked you out did you think it was a conspiracy theory <laughs> there, there was a point in time when I was in law school college and law school where I was looking forward to trying to prove Oswald's innocence and I was really ideological devoted towards that and as I started to learn more about law in law school and start to go do first level research where I would go to the first source and I started to see that earlier conspiracists had been wrong in their interpretation and a lot of and, and it just sort of snowballed over the years and nobody would go back and check so like just one quick example how to understand government policies and government documents because a lot of the folks who were doing the work had not been in the government Maybe they had been in the war, some war, you know, 20 in World War II, Korea <laughs> from years earlier. But, you know, once we got further on, no, they had no government experience. They're just people all around the country. So there was one. Uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, when he left the Soviet Union in 1962, he was broke and he's trying to come back to the United States. And the State Department loaned him four hundred and ten dollars and conspiracists, especially as you got away from that point in time were how the heck did he get allowed back into the United States? He had defected to the Soviet Union in 1959. He was a traitor, as with air quotes, because uh, he couldn't be legally a traitor under the, under the law. But he was basically a traitor. And not only did we let him back in the country, but we loaned him money. Well, if you start to research what the law was, one, he was still a U.S. citizen because he didn't properly renounce his citizenship. I actually represented the uh, consular official in our embassy in Moscow, the foreign service officer, who Oswald threw his passport at and said, I'm defecting from the United States. I don't want anything to do with you. And, but, you know, we're all about the law and paperwork. So Oswald never signed the proper paperwork to renounce his citizenship. So when he wanted his passport back, the U.S. government had to give him his passport back. And there was a program, uh, it may still exist now, I don't know, but there was a program certainly then that if you fit the criteria, you could be loaned money by the U.S. government to help you come back. So could there be a, a suspicious reason, you know, oh, the CIA is trying to bring them back, you know, some intel reason? Sure, you can come up with lots of different wild theories where it could have been an intel operation. But I'm a big believer in Occam's razor. The s simplest explanation is the best. And then again, now having worked with the intel agencies over the year, over the years, now 25 plus years. Yeah. So you're, you're a rare breed because obviously in this day and age, we are 
kind of drowning in conspiracy theories. And I, I always marvel uh, that the, the right seems to have a propensity to believing conspiracy theories more than the left. Not that, not that the left doesn't have theirs. And I've read certain theories about it, but you're a rare breed in that you were open to a conspiracy theory and then looked at it and walked away from it. Cause I, I always joke that I've never met anyone in the world who no one in the world has ever looked at a conspiracy theory and said, Oh, now I get it. Yeah. And I you think see what you want to see. You see confirmation yeah, bias. Absolutely. And a lot of it is, is from my time in law school and training as a lawyer and, and frankly that thought process. And many of the cases I've worked on have been conspiratorial in nature. I mean, Panem 103 case had lots of conspiracy theories associated with it. Uh, certainly JFK. Uh, I'm trying to think. I worked on the Lincoln assassination. You know, I, I have a... I mean, look, conspiracies do exist. Anyone who's worked in the government knows that. But what do you mean by conspiracy? You know, it doesn't have to be conspiracy to cover something up. I mean, it's usually covering up something because they don't want to get in trouble for something that they did. And, and I always say, actually, with respect to the intel agencies in particular, but it can apply to other agencies, there, there, are, there is a conspiracy of one. I see it all the time. Now, legally, you cannot have a conspiracy of one. It's a conspiracy of two or more people. But inside the intel world, and again, it could apply in the State Department elsewhere, where, uh, but especially in intel where you are so isolated when you become a pariah, when someone suspects you did something, uh, because you're under invest, you got curtailed early, got brought back early from whatever posting you were at, or you, um, they know you've been suspended, and but nobody knows why because the Privacy Act should protect everybody. But everyone starts to. This is when you really get to see who your friends are when you're in trouble inside one of the agencies because people start avoiding you. And, oh, they see you walking down the hallway, they take another door. Uh, or, you know, when they, you're, they, that looks like they're whispering at lunch and you walk by and they stop, you know, is it, are they talking about you or not? And it's usually because no one knows what the heck problems you're into and they don't want to be involved yeah. with it at all. It has, the, you know, there could be conspiracies between bosses, but it's usually not. It's usually just that they don't want anything to do with it. Well, you, you two are... Very familiar, obviously, with the, how sausage is made in government, and Emily and I spent a lot of time in government. <laughs> and you, I think, hit the nail on the head when you said most of this is incompetence. And I, I always thought um, when people look at the actions of their government, it is easier to think that the motivation is uh, evil than incompetent. You just well, want to believe your government is all-knowing, all-capable, you don't want to think that these people don't know what they're doing. But more times than not, we didn't know what we were doing. I always said that the CIA, I used to call it the central agency, and the I was just very, very optional. <laughs> I'm like, it's a central agency. Maybe tomorrow we'll add the I. Because they're really, they're not capable. There's so much damn bureaucracy, and it's like drinking from a fire hose. Even to get a signature done, you have to have it on the cream sheet, not the off-white sheet. I mean, there was so much, it would be impossible to get that done. If someone wanted to do a conspiracy, they'd be like, all the paperwork. Well, why, I, I mean, I crack up every time with the deep state stuff going, oh, it was this massive deep state conspiracy to prevent Trump from getting elected or once he was elected to take him down and look at all these emails and go, one, if it's a conspiracy, they're not going to document it in emails yeah. that are foyable. They're not that stupid. Well. Two. Uh, yeah. Some of them are. Most <laughs> of them, especially <laughs> the senior, I don't know if Clapper and all these guys are going to be documenting. You know, it's like the rest of them, like, 
no one is this good in this town no. to pull this off without it ever leaking out. It can't well, work And depending that way. on what tweet we make, and Brad's much more prolific than yes. I am, which I don't understand when he's supposed to be doing work and he's <laughs> tweeting I all the time. I have multiple screens up on my computer. I don't know about you. But, you know, one day, not even one day, one hour we are extreme right wing and the next hour we are extreme left wing that we're being attacked by all these anonymous trolls and a lot of it is when we it's amazing we will defend the intel agencies and say that that's just not how the system works you guys you just don't understand it and and it's usually because there's a level of incompetence or cya uh or or something uh, of the sort and it doesn't mean that there might not have been something done wrong even illegally but to come up with a grand conspiracy of an agency. That's why Trump's allegations about the Bureau. So the last uh, two and a half or so years, I think we've been witnessing, it's fair to say, the least transparent and probably most abusive administration of the process. I heard Trump say the other day he was the most transparent (laughs) president ever. So I believe him. Yeah, let me retract the question and we'll move on. (laughs) The... um, I'm curious with so many problems, including, you know, Jared Kushner and his various problems filling out forms and handling classified information. How do you pick and choose what to focus on and what your priorities are right now? It's an ongoing discussion, I would say, between Mark and I from week to week almost of what we're going to focus on between what we have to actually work do deal with to get paid in terms of clients coming in with clearance problems or with personnel actions, you know, the bread and butter of the practice, but then also on the FOIA angle of what particular issue of public interest we're going to pursue. Because, I mean, when the president uh, won the election in 2016 and, you know, he took the oath of office, we put out a call saying we will take pro bono a whole slew of FOIA cases because we're going to open up what's going on here because there was a lot of confusion and secrecy. You know, you had issues with Jared and Ivanka getting White House jobs. You had questions about, you had all these things coming out where like, this has never been tested. You had emoluments issues. You had the Trump Hotel and him still owning all that. And there was a lot of confusion as to how this was going to play out. It was an unprecedented situation. Um, And so we took on a host of different cases and got some good details out. So I got some interesting stuff out. Um, But it's, you know, people ask, you know, is this, you know, your question, is this the least transparent? And I go, it's hard to say and to quantify it because by and large, administration to administration, this is my third president dealing with uh, in terms of FOIA. It's always on the margins. So I have not seen like huge shifts in litigation positions from Bush to Obama to Trump. By and large, the case law is the case law. It all is the same. What you see it is on the margins of how willing agencies are to work with you on certain things to try to, you know, negotiate some good faith, you know, practical solution to the problems and how much interest there is in working on some of the procedural behind the scenes stuff. And you saw it towards the end of the Bush administration and throughout the Obama administration, you saw a lot of improvement on the processing of FOIA, on the FOIA portal, on things of trying to make it so people could utilize it. It was more user friendly. It wasn't just something lawyers knew how to work with and, you know, FOIA advocates. With the current administration, I'm seeing none of that. Doesn't mean that maybe there's something going on behind the scenes that I'm just not aware of it. Maybe Mark is. But a lot of that push for reform for legislative and some, you know, internal uh, executive reform that we had seen during the last two presidencies, I've seen just ground to a halt. They don't they're just 
kind of going through the grind at this point. I don't see any push to push out more, you know, hire more FOIA officers. Like there have been a huge discussion about that. There was a lot of processing problems at CIA and uh, DHS during the Obama days. CIA always has problems. Um, but you've seen, you had seen some push, some try, some effort to reform or try to fix that problem that, you know, that people don't see when it's, you know, uh, FOIA processing is happening. See none of that now. They're just going. We'll do the bare minimum required by law and nothing else. Yeah, I mean, I I, I can only speak from my perspective at state. I think people take FOIA requests. Um, they take them seriously. There's there's no political overlay for so they're they're coming into the bureaucracy. The point of contact, the receiver, is is not anyone you would think making a decision about. Oh, we don't want to talk about that. Oh, we don't want to release that. But it is overwhelming to the system, the sheer volume. And I, I, you know, people, I think, misunderstand FOIA. You can't just say, dear government, um, tell us what the nuclear codes are. <laughs> there, there are <laughs> there are criteria, there are limitations, mm -hmm. but it really does uh, add up. But I, you said something that made me think. So during the 2016 election, when Hillary was being bombarded for right or wrong on her email practices, I was always struck by the hypocrisy of the Republican field because of who was making the attacks. You had multiple U.S. senators, uh, Cruz, Graham, Rubio, I'm probably missing someone, who were exempt from FOIA. I worked in the U.S. Senate for eight years, and the dirty secret is Congress exempts itself from FOIA. How do you, you how do you exempt yourself? You, well, Congress exempts itself. Congress exempts itself from everything, like OSHA rules. Mm -hmm. You yep. can smoke in the Capitol. They they just do that by, but the audacity for U.S. senators to talk about, you know, opacity and you know the opaque nature of the federal government when you can't get a single. They have no document retention rules. They can pretty much have a bonfire every day of what they get. I'm curious if you've done any work on that. And I, if I remember ironically, Abby Lowell, Jared Kushner's uh, attorney, has done a lot of work on this in terms of trying to get. And I know uh, Senator Pat Leahy, every two years, every session, introduces legislation to, to get Congress to cough it up. But it, it really is a huge... <laughs> uh, yeah, it I don't think Congress has any interest in actually allowing themselves to be subject to that same kind of scrutiny, especially with email practices. I mean, remember when the Hillary stuff came out and we had to you know, talk about the private email, all of a sudden all these senators and congressmen who had been handing out the business cards, what did they have on there? An AOL email or a Gmail email, but they weren't subject to FOIA. And so there was no issue. We could never review all their emails to see if any of them had allowed classified information to slip in uh, inadvertently. You know, and they have the FOIA week, the Sunshine Week every year in March. March, and I think it was two years ago, maybe three years ago, Jason Leopold is a you know, yeah. good journalist and, you know, quote unquote, FOIA terrorist uh, was asked in one of those panels, you know, what would you do? One thing that you would do uh, to reform FOIA? And he goes, have you guys make it subject to Congress as well? What's the it. argument for, for not? Congress simply doesn't. Other than not wanting it. Yeah, I mean, 
think the view was always that because of the work the executive branch does and because Congress is viewed strictly there as kind of the legislative and oversight and the executive branch is the meat and potatoes, it's the it's the actual bureaucracy, a lot of the actual work of governing is done truly through the executive. Congress just decides how to do it. I think they viewed, and I don't know, Mark may have know about the legislative history better than I do, I think they viewed themselves as not really being relevant in that context, that what they do in terms of emails to staffers or to friends wasn't the same kind of issue in terms of the functions of government. Yeah, I remember it was created in 1966, so it was a very different time. And I, I, I have not made an issue to try and get it to cover to Congress. It should be, but it's so broken on the executive branch side. I, I want to fix that first. And, and when I say broken, it's primarily broken just by lack of resources. I mean, the system itself is actually pretty good. And, and, you know, you mentioned, and I agree, most FOIA officers are real gung-ho and want to be as helpful as possible. Depends on the agency. CIA is not. I was going to say, you have to accept CIA one agency. I know you're... Yeah. But, you know, we've, we've created relationships with FOIA officers over the years. Sometimes they stay in those agencies for years, and, and we deal with them, and I'm on panels with them, and et cetera. And... Uh, you know, I know that they're dedicated towards openness, and a lot of the problems are not their making, it's other policy officials within the agencies. But they don't have the resources. So State Department right now is one of the worst agencies because they're overwhelmed. And FBI, incredibly <clears throat> horrific. So, you know, one of the cases we have, I can throw out another one we could talk an hour on, the, the victimization of our diplomats in Cuba and China with whatever was they were, they were attacked by. We represent almost a dozen of the folks at State Department and NSA. Uh, and we have two FOIA lawsuits against the State Department. Uh, well, yeah, two, uh, one for the Accountability Review Board investigation and then a broader one about these types of attacks. And that is also against, you name the agency and they're a defendant. And the State Department is providing us 300 pages a month and they've identified potentially 150,000 pages responsive. So just do the math. <laughs> I think it was 37 years that it's going to take for them to provide the information. I mean, that's, that's ridiculous. It's also ludicrous. You're talking about people who have, have dealt and suffered real injuries, in Cu- especially in Cuba, like permanent hearing loss, permanent just damage to their own body, and the government's not taking accountability. No, I mean, it's being swept under the rug. And that that's, as we're getting further away, we're having more and more difficulty. Is it also harder with these kind of problems? Like it made the news, but now there's so many other problems with Trump that no one's focused on it. You have people who oh, yes. are, these are federal employees that should be cared for by the government and they're not. And to me, that's, it's, it's horrific, but I feel like no one's going to pay attention to it because we have all these other dumpster fires. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's not within our subject matter area of what we would talk about, but you know, anyone who does follow politics, the Virgi- the governor of Virginia is still in office. The lieutenant governor of Virginia is still in office. And the attorney general of Virginia is still in office. If any of those three scandals, whether it's true or not, had had hit someone 10 years ago, none of those guys would well, be in office. better. Yeah. The l- lieutenant governor just said he's thinking about running for governor. Yeah. Of course he is. <laughs> so uh, it, it is a different world now. And, uh, you know, to the degree to which Trump, he certainly didn't create it but he's so different than what we've ever seen before that there is a new front page headline story every single day 
so that nothing lasts really for more than a couple of days. And that, that does make a lot of what we do difficult. You, but it does, sorry. sorry. I was going to say, when you get these FOIA requests back and they look like Mad Libs and there's like two words and you're trying to make it out, what's, what do you then do? Do you get to go back and say, this is crap, get me more? And do they say, this is all you get? Like, what, where's your recourse to say this is not acceptable? Yeah, so I mean, we, we very typically go straight to court. At, at least at the earliest opportunity, uh, if we put in a FOIA request, that we're on a mission to yeah. get that information. So most of the time, quite frankly, the agency doesn't even have time to respond. I mean, statutorily, they have to by 20 working days, 20 business days, but they're not able to. And 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 it, uh, kind of what you were saying earlier, Philippe, about sort of ignoring the laws and in, in everything, and that people outside the community don't understand. I mean, I get we get both of us, I'm sure. We get lawyers who contact us from all over the country who have never dealt with FOIA and they're demanding and they're frustrated and angry that the government hasn't responded in 20 working days. And it's just a joke uh, that I got to tell them, even though the law requires it. And I, I taught some Albanian delegation through USAID a number of years ago about FOIA for a week and actually went out to the State Department for presentations. And it's somewhat embarrassing, and I teach the CLE class for lawyers in D.C. on FOIA for almost 20 years. It's embarrassing to say that here's a law on the books that everybody intentionally ignores, including the judges. The reason is understandable, because the agencies can't respond. It's just physically impossible, lack of manpower, lack of money. But could you imagine, you know, you're driving down... K Street in D.C. and speed limit's 25, and you're like, eh, screw that. You know, I'm, as far as I'm concerned, I'm going 35, and which a lot of people do anyway. But, you know, you get pulled over, and the cop says, I'm giving you a ticket, and you say, no, 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 I, I disregarded that law. I don't have to follow that. I mean, literally, that's what happens in FOIA all the time. And trying to explain that to foreigners, <laughs> much less even to Americans and American lawyers, uh, it, it's, in, it's, it's, it's embarrassing, quite frankly. Uh, but so... At least there is a legal standard required. When we litigate the cases, it is the burden on the executive branch agency to justify its withholdings, to justify what search parameters it applies. But can't CIA just say sources and methods all the time? They and then, do. Oh, they okay. do. They do. Because I would they, just yeah. think cause there's nothing you can say to yes. really combat that. So, yeah. So when the agencies will try to claim it's something that's classified or implicates national defense information, something along those lines, they will, in that affidavit, give, depending on the agency, a certain level of detail about how it implicates, whether it's sources and methods or what, you know, which particular category under the executive orders for classified information it implicates. And you see a distinction between a CIA type of agency or, you know, an NSA versus someone who's not quite as paranoid in how much detail they'll give you. And what uh, CIA has kind of learned is they can go just to the absolute bare minimum as required by law. Mm -hmm. And most of the judges who are just so sick and tired of dealing with FOIA litigation, unfortunately, will go, yeah, it's enough for me. Once in a great while, depending on a case, if it's politically sensitive, something like that, we'll get a judge who'll push back and go, this is crap. Give me more information. Give me more detail. Or let me see it in camera behind the, you know, just the judge gets to see it alone because the judges are allowed to have access uh, in certain circumstances to the classified information. Once in a while, you get that. But by and large, unfortunately, it's one of those with classified information, it's really hard to be. If the President of the United States, there's obviously two points to this. Mm -hmm. The Obama administration recognized that there was a problem in backlog. Mm -hmm. It was 
terrible at some agencies. It was catastrophic at other agencies. It needed resources. So that's the formal dealing with it. But when you have someone like Donald Trump who says routinely, we are not going to provide this, we are not going to provide that, we are going to ignore this, it sends a message throughout the federal government. So when someone says to Secretary of State Pompeo, Mr. Secretary, we are running really behind, and, and it's really no different than when they had a passport backlog. We need to pull people from the field. We need to pull people from here. Pompeo is not going to think that this is a priority of anyone's because he knows no one's going to give him a hard time except for you two. Yeah. No, it's very much leadership from the top. Now, what I would say with this administration is that there's just no leadership with respect to FOIA. There, there is no care that I have seen at all from a policy standpoint from this administration with respect to FOIA policies. Now, that is so I've been here since Clinton was inaugurated, and but I know enough about how Bush and Reagan was before them as well, which is really when FOIA started to pick up. It was really in the 80s. Uh, it wasn't used that often, litigated that often in the 60s or 70s. It was really 80s, 90s, and, and through forward. So every administration issued FOIA policies until this one. And either it would come out with a presidential statement or a statement, or both, and a statement from the Attorney General of the United States. And there would be a message that would be sent. So when Clinton came in office, literally like the first day of office, he and Janet Reno issued policy guidance. They're not, they don't have any force of law, but they send a message, like you said, to the worker bees as to what in the bureaucracy you should apply. When Bush came, became president, he did not issue a policy, but Ashcroft did. And he reversed basically the policy that Reno had issued, which was Reno's message was, uh, hey, agents, to, to the agencies, the message was internal to the agencies. Any agency who we don't believe has justified its FOIA withholding, we, the Justice Department, will not represent you. Ashcroft's order was literally, anything you want to withhold, you tell us and we will defend you. Now, those send very different messages. I will tell you, because when I teach lawyers about FOIA, I co-teach with a Justice Department lawyer, who we've been doing it together for literally almost 20 years. And we were adversaries all the time, I mean, friendly adversaries. And I always used to ask when that policy was in play, I would always ask her, so did you ever, during the eight years of the Clinton administration, decline to represent an agency? Zero. No, never. So they, they never followed through on that. So, But it was still a message. And when um, Obama came in, uh, Holder issued a, a policy memo. And the Obama administration, actually, there's a lot we can criticize about them, mostly because they set expectations so high that they were going to be the most transparent uh, of uh, administrations. And they fell short of the expectations they set. But, I mean, overall, they did well. I mean, there was a Democratic administration. They are more inclined to push for disclosure. And they, as you mentioned, they did a lot on the electronic side in providing resources. So we certainly expected a shift backwards when a Republican administration comes in. But because it happens to be Trump as well, there's zero guidance. He doesn't care. Now, he makes statements all the time about what he's going to release or not release. And we've used that in court. And, and, and Brad can talk to that much oh, more yeah. than I can. 
As I say, the judges have basically decided, and it's not just been in FOIA, it came out in the travel ban litigation, too, in front of the Supreme Court. The judges, judges have basically said, we don't care what he says, unless he literally is going to specifically say, I just read XYZ document, and it says this information. They are going to assume anything he tweets, anything he says in a press conference, anything he says in a pool spray is irrelevant political commentary. We literally were using his tweets about the Steele dossier. We would try to describe it as fake, it's fraudulent. Judge said, doesn't matter. It doesn't, it doesn't reflect the government of confirmation of anything about the accuracy or lack well, thereof. Of it. But literally, I'm... Because basically what the judge said was, you've provided me with no basis to believe this is anything other than Donald Trump watching Fox News tonight and rambling about it. If the president retweeted Tom Fitton over Judicial Watch, providing a description of things, it was irrelevant. Um, we literally had, because we have one of the various FOIA cases... They were going after the FISA applications into people like Carter Page. Oh. And we had these tweets from the president where he was literally saying, this, these redactions that came out, when the, the application came out, these redactions are ridiculous. This should never be uh, disclassified. The, judge, the Justice Department really responded, the president was not declassifying via Fox and Friends. That's in a Justice Department legal brief. They've had to go to this point. They basically said, because we don't care from the left or the right as far as how FOIA should be applied. If the law says the document should be released, then that's we guide people on on how to apply it. Uh, the cases that we did that, that you were involved with were all pro bono cases uh, at the time. Oh, so you you sued me for free just yes. for the fun of it. But it was totally. I don't even fun. think we got a turn. Did we get any attorneys fees in that case? Uh, we got some attorneys. We got, fees. I got a few thousand dollars at the end of the day. But you would have done it for free. <laughs> yeah, I mean, of course. so we we. We did it not thinking we were going to get any money uh, at, at the time. And sometimes the FOIA has a fee-shifting statute so that we can make some money. Uh, I mean, it's like, you know, nickels on the dollar or however the saying goes. But, you know, yes, we offered, as Brad mentioned earlier, when this administration came in, that we would represent journalists for free, especially if it was a national security issue or an <laughs> accountability issue. But I've been doing that for 25 years. And whoever the next president is, will do the same thing. And uh, it has, now we have, anyone who reads our tweets knows we are not fans of Donald Trump at all. Not in the same way, and I have multiple lawsuits against him personally, but it has nothing to do with him being a Republican. It, it's Donald Trump. Uh, I, I got no issues with, with Republicans. I got no issues with Democrats. I might not like a particular one, uh, but you know, we, we sue everyone who's in office. Doesn't matter. Whoever's in power, we're going to sue because, you know, they're, they're going to do something that is bad or wrong or incompetent or challengeable, whatever it might be. Um, and, you know, until this administration and anyone who's been who, who is in Washington on long term, you know, folks go in and out of government and especially the lawyers. So when there's a Republican administration in office, we're hanging out with the Democratic lawyers in the big firms or at the policy think tanks who were senior level government officials at all, you know, at every level in every agency. And then when it switches to the other administration, we're hanging out with the Republican lawyers, you know, people who are cabinet officers, general counsels. And, you know, we work with them hand in glove uh, on cases all the time. So, I mean, it has nothing to do with, with politics. We might have a particular policy that we're interested in. Um, so I, I get, uh, I won't speak for Brad. I, I get really frustrated when I get called partisan. It really bothers me because I don't think I am. 
at all. And I don't think there's anything that one can look at in any of the cases that we handle where that's the case. I mean, geez, I worked on the Haditha case. I get accused of being a war criminal, defending war criminal and baby killers. And then at the same time, we're part of the deep state. I forget what else we, what other bad things we've done. But. We're part of the deep state too. So yeah, welcome. So, yes. Yes. <laughs> and it's the Jewish deep state, yes. which is even worse. Because the, uh, cause we can only work six days a week. That's why we don't accomplish enough. With the good bagels and schmear. Yes. The, um, you know, we've been shorthanding the Trump administration, Trump, uh, you know, Emily's obviously incredibly familiar with CIA. That's her base of knowledge, me and the State Department, Congress. But we're kind of, there's a misunderstanding about FOIA. If you send a Dear White House letter, I want to see this under the Freedom of Information Act, what response are you going to get? Doesn't apply. Yeah, we're exempt, which is, yeah. you know, when when uh, the stories came out that uh, Ivanka Trump had used a private email in the first six, eight months, whatever, of the administration, there was a lot of people going, oh, FOIA the emails, FOIA the emails. I'm going, I'd love to see the emails. I'd love to put them to the same vetting that Hillary Clinton emails went through. She's exempt from FOIA. We can't apply it Why? to her because when Congress created the statute, just like they exempted themselves, they wanted to exempt certain inherently political offices in the White House. They didn't because uh, because the, a lot of the White House does is falls under the rubric of the Presidential Records Act. They didn't want to provide an overlapping mechanism. They wanted to give the White House the most inherently political aspect of the executive branch some ability to do its essential functions without constantly dealing with uh, FOIA responses. And they're going to have leaks as it is, like any White House. So they, I think the, the concept of behind this for Congress was any president any White House is going to have to have some room to work. And so if you applied FOIA to it, it would inhibit it. It would allow people to constantly dig into the details, all of your emails over and over. And it would just kind of make it a never-ending drama story beyond what it already is anyway in this particular administration. But it would apply to all administrations. Well, and the easiest point. answer was <clears throat> the statute talks about age. It applies to an agency. And the White House is not an agency. It's the head of the executive branch of government. There, it used to be that the NSC, the National Security Council, and some White House offices were subject to FOIA. There's a slew of litigation in the mid, especially late 90s, about whether NSC is subject. Uh, and now they're basically, they're not now. Uh, sometimes some of the White House administrative offices will voluntarily subject themselves. I haven't. I don't think we've really dealt with the current uh, administration about no. that. Because, again, like I mentioned in the beginning, most of the, quite frankly, most of the FOIA law, even though the Supreme Court just ruled on something with FOIA, which is pretty rare, <clears throat> and it was a very narrow FOIA ruling to a certain type of category of records, uh, most of it has been pretty well settled. So, frankly, we don't waste our time going after White House-related records because we're not so going to get So to sum it. up, the most powerful um, statute meant to reveal what goes on the u.s government does not apply to the congress of the united states or to the white house or the, or the judiciary. judiciary or judiciary <laughs> yeah. so right. it's just our us poor slobs at uh usda agriculture cia yeah. and the state department yeah it's in particular if you're a state department official and you're emailing you know well, this media representatives I, i'm going to put this as as fashion say when I have been making these joke, non-jokes about you suing me, <laughs> can you explain to the listeners what it is that I'm 
I'm talking about. Sure. So because I'm not kidding. No. I was gonna say yeah. you're he's, joking way he, too he's much. He's kidding, but he's not kidding. So uh, back in the thing, it was twenty. And we do need 20. to sue Emily for something. We, though, gotta, to I'll make, find. I'll to find. Make there's so things many things I can better. help you. <laughs> I'll find a way to sue Emily. Um, no. So I think it was either 2014, 2015. I can't remember the specific time frame, but it was before uh, Secretary Clinton had announced she was going to run in 2016. Gawker had approached us. They had an outstanding uh, FOIA request. They were going after your, Philippe, they were going after your records of communications with members of the media. Given the nature of your position at state, that was going to be something you were regularly doing. And when they originally submitted the FOIA request, state said, we don't have any records. And they called us and they said, could this be possible? I go, not unless Philippe was calling everybody on a regular basis. No, well, it's and, not possible. And they had copies of emails, I yeah. think, that you had corresponded yeah, they, with they, them on. Yeah, so they knew that you had been corresponding uh both on you know official government email and on private email to members of the media. So they retained us. We sued State Department, and immediately the first thing that came back from State was, oh, yeah, we have all of these emails that we found, and we've contacted, you know, Philippe, and he's going to produce what he's got that he may still have in his own possession. It's like 20 boxes. It was I something like 20 had, right? boxes, hard copies, I believe, if I recall, because Philippe wanted to make it hard on State. No, that's the statute. <laughs> That's that the requirement. Had, that you had to that produce had 20 it in hard boxes? copy? Uh, that you had to provide them by paper. Oh, that's why Hiller did it, too. That's just horrible. That needs to be changed. Uh, so Philippe turned over about 20 boxes worth of stuff, and they went through it, and we had production for months and months and months going you know, into now the campaign season. Who's going through all those emails? Uh, at State Department, it's FOIA officers who are looking at it. They're going through everything looking for responsiveness. So we had a, the scope of the request was only his communications with members of the media. And so they would look at see, you know, if it's talking about some unrelated issue with someone else, it's not responsive and they wouldn't produce it to us. So all we got, we got all these emails of, you know, Philippe responding to various members of the media and, oh, we're going to do this interview that day or, yeah, we're going to talk about this particular policy issue this day. And some of the stories, you know, made for good juicy gossip. There was various things. Like, I'm not going to, I'm not, if you want to find it, Google Gawker, Hillary Clinton, uh, sorry, okay. Gawker, Philippe Brains emails, you'll find a bunch of stories. I won't do that. To and Philippe. none at my expense. No. Usually at the reporter's expense. Yeah. <laughs> I just, it's boggling to me that you, first of all, it's kind of genius. There's 20 boxes of stuff, but there's literally a human who's going through every yeah. sheet who's going, going. Going through everything. How long did that take, somebody? It took, I think, the entire litigation took a little over a year, something like 18 Jesus. months. But by the end of it, there became a legal dispute, and Philippe gets to be part of a case of first impression in FOIA. There was a legal dispute about how detailed the agency had to provide an explanation of how Philippe had determined what to turn over. Oh, Jesus. So Because we, we said, well, how do we know how he figured out what to search? Did, you know, how did he run the search on his computer? Being purely legal FOIA you know, purists here, not anything against Philippe, we said we want to know how he did it. I had never heard of him. I I, 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 I I saw the name. I was like, I think I remember hearing this at some point. I remember seeing photos of him with Natalie Portman somewhere at one point. <laughs> there is that photo. <laughs> yes. Um, another, very, another member of the tribe. Yes, another yes, member of the tribe. A very and, young Philippe. Um, but yeah, so you know, we had we fought this argument. We had asked for discovery, saying we want an affidavit from Philippe. Yes, he's no longer an official. We want the court to at least request that he produce an affidavit just explaining how he did it. And I would have been satisfied. The court said, no, for purposes of this, this is an issue of first impression. No one's ever had to consider this before. If a former official turns over records in this context, they do not have to explain how they compiled it. I adore you, Philippe, but why not? To me, saying because this FOIA, is... Because FOIA didn't require it. But it's, it's asking, I mean, to me... You... Well, there's, a, there's a presumption that the U.S. government is acting in good faith. Okay. Yep. And 
it, it was a stretch for me at that point a private citizen. Okay. I'm, I'm going to address three parts here just to clarify. <laughs> First. Um, Natalie Portman. <laughs> the, the 20 boxes. So they were in boxes and printed again because State, Repart- State Department requirement is when you provide any work-related material has to be printed. Obviously because this regulation was written in like 1972 when there was no such thing as a USB, not even a five and a quarter inch drive. Um, It was 20 boxes for a simple reason. And I found out it was 20 boxes because Hillary called me and saw a headline and she was like, what the, (laughs) what's with 20 boxes? And it took me a minute to realize um, I had, I had given over my computer, my desktop computer to my lawyers, uh, Beth Wilkinson at the time of Paul Weiss um, who was representing me and others pro bono um, in all sorts of matters, including this one. And I had given them my iMac. I, I physically walked it over there and I, I gave it to them. And I said, you know, I want you to produce, um, I want you to have it. I want you to be able to, I want to be able to say you have it. And I want you to hand over everything. And it occurred to me <laughs> that every day I was being sent the same clips the the package of news articles that was being sent to the secretary that were 200 pages so you had four years of 200 page attachments (laughs) that when i said to my attorneys print everything (laughs) i don't think i anticipated and whatever poor summer intern was sitting there collating them didn't think it was anything out of the ordinary and if you're a law firm like you guys 20 boxes is not out of the ordinary I mean, it's still a lot. It's a lot. But anyway, it's it's not that I was concealing 20, 20 boxes. But, you know, in terms of uh, picking, we use the same same criteria. Um, yeah, of course, I, our client went bankrupt during the course yeah. of the case yes, after yeah. losing to Hulk Hogan. After losing to Hulk Hogan. Oh, but, oh. but do, you want to, do you want to hear back to our conversation about ineptitude? Do, yeah. you, do you want to hear why the State Department... Gave the first answer that they couldn't find anything. I almost this, died to hear this. This one's a doozy. When I first started the State Department, I was technically not part of the secretary staff. I was part of Public Affairs, the Public Affairs Bureau. Public Affairs Bureau had a different email system, and uh, I was assigned an email. My last name, last name, first initial, middle initial. So it was Rhinus P.I., which had its own problem. I couldn't. I was getting Magnum PI jokes. Left <laughs> I was right. going to say that's amazing. I'm about to say, that's it great. was Rhinus PI at state.gov. We very quickly learned that there was some. You know, state is not exactly the most technologically advanced agency in the world. We were soon realizing that there was some problem that my email was not getting to the secretary staff and vice versa, and there was a severe annoyance. And I think you both know Pat Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Um, someone, I think Cheryl Mills, uh, my chief of staff, <clears throat> Hillary's chief of staff said to Pat, like, this can't go on. <laughs> like we can't be sending him email and he not know it and vice versa. So Pat moved me onto some other, I don't, it was probably like a Utah passport <laughs> office because there would be times we'd be on the road and everyone around me, their email would be down. And I'm like, I'm emailing away. There'd be days where my email would be down their email. They changed my email to Rhinus P. So when public affairs received the FOIA, in their mind, my email was Rhinus PI. They were technically correct. There was no email <laughs> that met the criteria because 
I stopped using it within probably two weeks of when I started. Now, <laughs> here's where you really see where there unfortunately isn't any political common sense. Someone looking at that would have said, hey, this is strange. He is the secretary spokesman. <laughs> Why isn't there any email? <laughs> let's, before we send a letter saying there is no email, let's look into it. And that's where you get into the, just the kind of, the the autopilot that these letters and these responses get without any consideration and i mean i remember that whole year i was thinking i would be as upset as gawker is it just yeah. there was no ill intent well you know another example and i'd like i'd like to hear you both say that i that i <laughs> i'm innocent in hindsight <laughs> I'd like to be acquitted at this table. Yeah, I, if we could exonerate you, we would. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't rem, I don't remember anything Line of the podcast, really right. interesting that came out of that other than a couple of it was just, fun it stories. It was just office gossip. It's Some almost evil. like our government is really big and not on the ball. Yes. Or overwhelmed because we have to blame the Justice Department for that, too, because the Justice Department was the one representing the yeah. State Department, and they submitted the declarations in support of their motion for a summary judgment. Well, I, I would read the transcript. My lawyers would send me the transcripts of, of the, not just the motions that you were filing, but the actual mm -hmm. interactions in court, the updates. And I would see these questions the judge was posing to the, to the Department of Justice on behalf, you know, representing the U.S. government, the State Department. And I could just see these Justice Department lawyers didn't know what to say because there wasn't, they didn't know the answer any more than you did. <laughs> I was reading these transcripts like, why does someone just say? In fact, at one point, I asked my lawyers if it would be helpful to write a letter to the court just saying, or I'm sorry, not to the court, write a letter, not an affidavit, just a helpful dear DOJ. We've seen that you've had these questions in court um, and here, if we can help, are some answers. And I don't remember. And we were begging the court to ask we, you, you did, we, we couldn't require because you were no longer right. a they government were simple employee. answers and yeah. i to be honest with you i would read these things and i would think because there were multiple doj lawyers and i would yep. think there are seven people here who went to law school <laughs> you know a judge plaintiff's lawyers the u.s government lawyers and they're arguing over my email which has more stupidity in it than anything else <laughs> And over questions that I could just easily, it just felt like a, a huge waste. And I was dying to uh, to just tell you guys, like, I'm not terrible. <laughs> yeah, I would say, now having litigated FOIA cases for over a quarter of a century, more often than not, in the last five, ten years, five years for sure, most of the arguments we make when we're in court are to shrug our shoulders, throw our hands up in the air, and say, Judge, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> I mean, this makes no sense. I don't have an argument. I think the, I think the, Let American, the government. I think the American people are probably better off not knowing that their government, as large as it is, as powerful as it is, doesn't know what they're doing. It's probably better that everyone thinks it's Well, now evil. they know because you just told them. <laughs> Good Lord. I mean, it's... I understand again why people want to think, because we, you know, we do stuff like Bin Laden, and we're, we're perfect, we're amazing, we can do anything. Yeah, well, yeah. what you they see, they can find Bin Laden, they can find his his email. Hey, and I, <laughs> well, thank well, you guys, yeah, yeah, Mark, absolutely, Bradley. Thank you so much. This is sobering. 
but illuminating. <laughs> hey, we got clarity into some details of the litigation against you I never knew and before. It was worth it just to be exonerated. And the next episode, we'll talk Natalie Portman. <laughs>